We're missing a few. There we go. All right. Well, assignments due today. Assignments due today. The quiz, the first quiz is due if you haven't taken it. I know there's about nine people who have done it so far. So if you haven't done that, that's available until 6 o'clock tomorrow. So make sure you get that done sometime today. And then your first solar observations. Any solar observations you've had a chance to get, I uh, turn that in today and I'll take a look at those and uh, give them back to you on Friday. Along with most of the other stuff you've already turned in should be back to you on Friday as well. Uh, you can also submit the solar observations. There is a Dropbox for those on D2L. You can type them into a Word file or something and just attach it and submit it that way. It's perfectly fine. If you have them here and you want to turn them in after class, you can turn in your whole packet if you're using that data sheet and I'll give it back to you on Friday. So you can turn that in, you can make a copy of it, however you want to do it is fine. And I'm only looking for at least one observation now that you've hopefully had a chance to get between uh, the beginning or the middle of August and uh, this week or today. And then coming up next week we have an exam scheduled for Monday covering the first three chapters, 0, 1, and 2. And I'll give you a little bit more information on that on Friday as a little breakdown as to exactly how it will, how it will go. And then the second homework is due next week, is due the next Friday of next week. Homework two, I gave that out to you uh, last time. So that will be due on the 13th. And then there's a second quiz coming up available that weekend, which will cover chapters two and three. And then looking a little bit further ahead, the first article review is due on September the 20th, the Friday. For the article review, I do have up on D2L 10 sample articles. You are allowed to use one of those if you want to use that. If you want to just use them as a guide for the type of articles I'm looking for. You will find those under lesson four, which is when the first article review is due. And there's ten of them up there now. I've got about five or six more I'm going to add in that are a little more recent for people who've taken the class before and see the same set of articles again and may not want to re read any of those others. But it gives you an idea of the type of article that I'm looking for. Those are all acceptable ones. You are allowed to pick one of those if you want to or if you want to go look for your own, that's just sort of a guideline as to what I'm, what I'm looking for. But you can see those now. They became available on Monday in Lesson 4, so you can actually see those now. Questions on anything? Yes, ma'am. I took a quiz mm -hmm. again, and when I was finished submitting the quiz, it just kind of popped up and said, thank you, and here's your grade. Right. You'll be able to see them tomorrow morning. It doesn't give out the answers for anything until after the quiz is closed. So it locks everything. That way I don't have one person taking the quiz and say, here, here's all the answers for everyone. Hopefully nobody would do that, but I know in other classes, not mine, but other professors have known it to happen. So that's why they're all hidden until then. So once the quiz closes tomorrow morning, if you go back into your attempt, you'll see. It'll show you the answer questions again and you're correct and your answers and the correct answers. So you'll know what you missed. You can use that to study for the, for the exam. Yep, no problem. Anything else? Sorry, traffic issues. Because of an accident, it's on 81 and 83. Was it? Slow traffic down in Cameron Street for 15. Is that what's going on? Yeah. I was sort of wondering because it's a little bit smaller than, a <laughs> little bit smaller class than I was expecting. Traffic, traffic, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. Okay, is it that bad? Wonderful. Yeah, and you're still running late. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for letting me know. So we'll, we'll please watch. I'll watch for people wandering in as they can as they can make it. Yeah.
What is it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, picture of the day for today. Picture of the day for today um, is an evaporating protostar. So we saw a couple, we saw nebulae before. It's actually part of a nebula you see a little bit around, around this star. The coloring doesn't really mean anything in this image like it did in the others. We talked about the red coloring meant something in the optical image and the blue meant something else. This, the coloring isn't as meaningful here because this is an infrared picture. It's taken by an infrared satellite. So infrared light is not something you can see so any coloring we add to it is false coloring just to you know, emphasize different, change, different changes, different intensities in it. So the coloring doesn't mean as much here but it still is what it is is an evaporating, evaporating star. A star is in the process of forming down here in the center is a star that is collapsing. As it collapses it starts producing energy. As it produces energy it pushes off material. So all that material that was collapsing to form it, some of that material is now getting pushed away and that's what you're seeing here. You see a shell around it and perhaps a weaker spot where material has been pushed off away from that, away from that star. So the interesting thing that is mentioned is how big will this star eventually get and there's a certain limit to really how big a star can become, how big of a star can form because that pressure, that radiation pressure pushes away the material as fast as it, faster than it can fall in. So there's a limiting mass to how big a star can be. Much bigger than the sun still. We know stars that are 20 and 40 and 50 times bigger than the sun. But we don't know of stars that are a thousand times the size of the sun. So there's just some sort of limit between the amount of material that can come in because as more material would try to fall in to add to this star gravitationally, the radiation pressure from the star is pushing away a lot of that material as well. So we're seeing this again and we see it in the infrared primarily because that's where the radiation is, uh, the most of the radiation is coming from. Most of the radiation is in the infrared because it is a very cool object. It hasn't really become a full-fledged star yet. It hasn't really become a full-fledged star so most of its radiation is being emitted in the infrared. It's also surrounded by a lot of dust. Visible light does not very good at penetrating through dusty material. So we can look into it with the infrared and that's what this IRAS satellite was, was this infrared satellite that orb was orbiting the Earth to look at the infrared radiation and to study star forming regions like this that you can't really study very easily in visible light because they're completely, in, they're, they're completely invisible, invisible light. They're blocked out by all of the dust around it. When we look at the infrared it gives us sort of a view in through that dust and allows us to see deeper inside. Questions, questions? As everybody filters in through the traffic? This would be, this is probably the star that is in the process of forming. Up here? Or up here? Where are you? Which one? Yeah, go ahead. You get the uh huh. Okay. That they're that they're so bright. Yeah. They could just be. They may not even be associated with this nebula. Those stars could just be closer stars or unusually bright stars or unusually bright stars in the infrared. 
just means they're putting out a lot of infrared radiation if they're bright in this. They might not be really bright stars overall. They might just be bright putting out a lot of infrared, very cool stars putting out a lot of infrared radiation. Is that okay? Question, sir? This image kind of reminds me of I've heard of um, a star being close to a black hole and the, the stars being like eaten by the black hole. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like it's going down a bathtub drain. Yeah. Are there actual pictures of that or is that all just. Are there pictures? There's drawings of it. There are no. It's not like an actual picture. You not a photograph. Get. No. Yeah. No. Cool yeah. That would, be, that would be, but that's not something we have. Anything that's close enough that we'd be able to get an image to actually see it. Yeah, it is. The material spirals in. It gets a big whirlpool almost as it's spiraling into the black hole, or an accretion disk as we call it. But yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, let's jump back to chapter two then. And... I sort of just started chapter two and we'd gone through the introduction of it and looked at some of the, uh, just started very basically talking about some of the different types of radiation. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. We sort of mentioned infrared when we, in our picture of the day today and I'll come through and look at the others. But the first thing we want to look at is how we get the information from the skies and what it is is through electromagnetic waves. So it's a wave, and in order to understand waves, I'm going to go through some basic information about waves here. And here's a wave, right? We've all seen waves of some kind, water waves, for example. And all waves have certain properties to them. So every wave will have, of any kind, will have some kind of wavelength. Just the distance between two succeeding crests of the wave, the crest being the top portion. So one wavelength of this wave would be the distance between two successive crests. You surely could. You could use trough to trough as well. You could use crossing this undisturbed line going up to crossing it again going up. In fact, you could use any similar point from the x to the x. That's one wavelength. Just typically we refer to it as crest to crest just for convenience, but any two identical points on the wave would give you the wave length. So how long that is. Now that can be very long for radio waves. You know, that could be meter, a meter wavelength between each crest. For, or down, down even to several centimeters. For visible light, we're talking uh, billionths of a meter. Uh, several hundred nanometers, uh, 300 nanometers, 500 nanometers, 600 nanometers for the wavelengths for visible light. Now for other things that can vary, you know, water waves can have a big variation in how long they are, how long they are. Um, optical and are visible and the electromagnetic waves have an even big radio, big, bigger variation. As I said, radio waves can be me several meters in wavelength and they go down to incredibly tiny wavelengths for x-rays and gamma rays. So there's a great big range there that we will look at coming up shortly. So the wavelength is one measure of the wave. The other is the amplitude. How high the crest goes above this dotted line is the undisturbed state. If you think about that as a water wave, that would be the nice, cool, calm water. Then you start the wave splashing in it. Where it was before is the undisturbed state. Once you start the waves, you're going to go above or below that undisturbed state. Your amplitude is how far up above you go from the crest. So from here to the peak of the crest, 
And similarly, if you wanted to go from here to the trough, you'd also get the amplitude of the wave. It would be the same either going up or going down. You'd get the same value for each one. So what the wave motion is, is a way to transport energy without physically transporting anything. You're not actually moving anything physical in a water wave. The water isn't moving right? until you get to the very edge. The water is bouncing up and down. The wave is traveling through the water. And you can see that if you've ever had, you know, watched a stick on the pond. Right? And you have the waves going by the wave. The stick might bob up and down, but it doesn't come quickly to shore. Right? Your transfer, all, this, all it's doing is bouncing up and down on the, on, the, on the water. So you're transporting energy, but you're not really transporting any, any material. You're not physically transporting the water. It's not moving the, as fast as the wave does. It's moving, if it is at all, a much slower, slower rate. How does I'm sorry? Um, the water is really staying there. I mean, there is some, yes, when you get to the end and as everything splashes in, there is some energy being converted as you lose the wave altogether when the base just becomes too low. But overall, when it's traveling, the waves are just the wave. There's nothing, it's just the water. It's not actually the water that's moving. It's the water picking up the new water and going on. So here's an example for the water wave I sort of mentioned there. There's the stick sitting in the water. It just, it's just sitting there. When I throw a rock in and splash, what does the stick do? It doesn't just ride the first wave, you know, like a surfboard off to the edge, right? It bobs up and down. And yes, there's some energy transport. And it's, it's probably slowly moving away, but nowhere near as fast as the wave, wave is. If it was actually moving the material and moving the water, then that first wave front that hit the stick would just push it off and carry it off with it. And that's not what happens. The water stays right where it is. The water just bobs up and down as this disturbance transfers through, through the water, through the lake, through the stream, whatever we're looking at, at here. But the wave does travel and can transmit energy. It's just not the wave, it's the wave that is traveling, not the actual particles itself. Sound waves are the same, right? When I speak, the wave is transfer, trans, transported through the atmosphere to your ears, but it's not the same air, right? It's not that the air that I'm exactly speaking comes out to you. I'm, I'm causing a disturbance in the atmosphere that travels through there and reaches your ears. So same way, air waves, air waves, sound waves, water waves, all very similar in that. And electromagnetic waves are the same kind, or similar types. So a couple, there's a whole bunch of definition and terms to give you here. A whole bunch of definitions to, as we go through waves. And first couple here that we've done, I've already given you Let's see, we did wavelength. I gave you amplitude. We've given wavelength and amplitude already. Now we're going to look at some other measures, and that's frequency. Frequency is the number of wave crests that pass a point every second. So if you're watching water waves come by, Every, how many, every many water waves splash you in a second? Not going to be very many, right? You're not going to get 10 waves hitting you in a second usually. 
So it's a pretty small number for, or a pretty, a pretty small number for water waves. For light waves, it might be a lot more. However many waves are passing any given point every second. So you could get hundreds of thousands of waves if you've got a really, really small wavelength. And it's traveling very fast. Okay? Light waves travel very fast. They travel at 186,000 miles per second, right? faster than any of us have ever gone by far. So it's just counting. So you're sitting there and watching at some point and how many waves pass you every single second, counting those. That gives you what we call the frequency. The period, and these two are related, is just the time it takes between the passage of a successive crest. So you one crest, how long did it take for the next crest to come? So if it took two seconds, right, you're standing in the water waves and one crest hits you, you get hit by one wave. Two seconds later you get hit by another. Your period is two seconds. How long does it take for each crest to hit you? The frequency would be how many waves passed per a second or would be, in that case, one half. Right? Half of a wave hits you in a, in a second because you hit, get hit one second and you don't get hit the next one, then you get hit again. So it would be half a wave hitting you on average every single second. So they're just inversely related. If you know one, you know the other. If you know that the period is two seconds, then the frequency will be one half. One half of a wave per second. And you'll see we refer to, we use, tend to use frequencies uh, when we talk about it in terms of astronomy, how fast things are passing every second. So you'd mention you know, wavelengths, you'd mention frequencies of uh, waves. Period, you don't use, quite, don't use quite as much. So two numbers really tell it, either both of them tell you the same thing in just a different way. How many waves are hitting you every single second or how many waves are passing by every single second. Wavelength, we've already given, right? Wavelength, I gave you before the distance between successive crests or any two similar points on the, on the wave. So two crests, two troughs, etc. Any two similar points. The velocity is the speed at which the crests move and that is given by the wavelength. The distance between two crests divided by the period. We know this number for electromagnetic waves. 300,000 kilometers per second, 186,000 miles per second. That's the speed of light. So for electromagnetic waves, it's the speed of light. For any other wave, if we're talking about sound waves, then we have to make a measure of the velocity. Sound waves can vary. So the speed of sound can depend on the atmosphere, the conditions in the atmosphere, how fast things will travel. Water waves, it'll depend on the actual, what's actually going on in the water. So those numbers vary. For electromagnetic waves, they're always the same. We always know what the velocity is. So when we can measure one thing, we can always get 
we can always determine the wavelength and the frequency and the period. We can always get all those others. The velocity is a fixed value for all electromagnetic waves. That means visible light, that means radio waves, that means x-rays and gamma rays. They all travel at exactly the same speed. All right. Now, some of the properties of waves, and I said there's a number of definitions here. Um, there's diffraction and interference. Uh, diffraction is one thing, is the bending of the wave. So when you get a wave, a uh, water wave example is shown here, right? You get a breakwater out there, try to keep the waves, keep some of the waves away from the shore. Works pretty good, blocks the waves here, but it doesn't cast a distinct shadow. Material actually bends around and waves will actually bend around other material to get where you didn't want them. So the waves will actually do that. Water waves will do it, so you'll get some waves coming in here behind the breakwater. You'll actually get the light waves doing the same thing. And we saw that in our picture of the day, even though I didn't mention it. When you looked at those stars in the picture of the day, you saw a star and a lot of the big bright stars had this cross through them. Right? That's not a decoration or anything added for it. That is actually a cause caused by diffraction in the telescope. And we haven't gone into great detail about telescopes yet, but a telescope essentially has a great mirror here at the back. And it has another mirror up here, and again we'll go over this in more detail later, but another mirror up here to reflect the light back down to a focus someplace where you're going to see it. Well, this little mirror here has to be supported. It doesn't just hover in space there, right? How nice if it could just hover in front of the telescope. And what it is, if you look down the telescope, now you're looking down the tube of the telescope, your mirror is down there. You put this little mirror at the top and you hold it in place. That's where the diffraction pattern comes from, is light Visible light bending around the little support structures holding your secondary mirror in place. So those little support structures hold that mirror in place. They do also cause that diffraction that we saw. In fact, let me go back since we've got it right here. That same pattern that we saw on each of those very bright stars. It's just very distinct in the very brightest stars. So right here, that's not actually part of the star image. That's because of the telescope that was being used. Same thing here. And here, over here, a number of the brightest stars will show that diffraction pattern because all the light is doing is bending around that support structure. All right, uh, there. Okay, so that's diffraction. Diffraction is just the bending of light. It occurs in water waves, it can occur in sound waves, it can occur in uh, light waves as well. The other thing that waves do is interfere with each other. If you add waves together, so if you have one wave going one direction and one wave going the other direction, you can actually increase the waves or decrease the amplitude of the waves. So you have one wave here in the green, a big wave. You got a smaller yellow wave. That's exactly the opposite. And that gives you the wave you're going to see. You don't see both of these two waves. You're only going to see what the result is, which is adding these two together. So you have a big one up here, but it's been decreased. And you have a big dip down here, but it's been increased a little bit. So it tends to even out the wave. So the waves can cancel each other. The waves can actually completely cancel each other. They could, if you had them exactly in the opposite direction, you could cancel each other. The 
headphones that they use, that you know, noise-killing headphones that people use, will do the same thing. They detect the sound that's coming in, flip it around, and broadcast that same, no same noise at the same intensity, just opposite, and the waves cancel out. So in order to get rid of a real lo loud noise, you make another real loud noise, and you put the two together just right, and you can eliminate or at least minimize the amount of sound coming through. The other place that you see this is if you like to go to the water parks, the wave pool. Right? You've got all those big waves coming. Um, real big waves in some places. Some places it's hardly anything. It's the same waves being generated at the front. But in some places you've got the crest adding on top of the crest. And instead of getting you know, a two-foot wave, you're getting a four-foot wave. In some places you've got the crest and the troughs adding together. And they cancel out and there's almost no wave there. So if you wander through those, you can find spots where everything is canceling. And you can find spots where all of the waves are adding together. And when you get them adding together, you're going to get a much higher uh, intensity, a much higher wave. When everything cancels out, if you line them up perfectly, if this went down to negative 2 and this went up to positive 2, you'd get just a straight line here. You get no wave. You could essentially cancel out the entire wave. So just a couple examples of there of where you've seen that, but this can work for any kind of waves. Any kind of waves that work, you add them together, your result that you see is the combination of those two waves, three waves, ten waves, however many you put together to give you that, give you that pattern. You only see the result of it. All right, now, most waves require something to travel in. If we take all the atmosphere out of the room, we suffocate, right? Well, ignoring that little uh, aside, if I keep speaking, you don't hear anything. No sound is going to get to you because there's nothing for the sound waves to travel in to get to your ears. So there we requires a medium, right? Water waves only have to travel through water. They hit the land, they're done, right? So you always have to have some kind of medium for them to travel through. Electromagnetic waves are different. Electromagnetic waves are a different type of wave and do not require anything to travel through them. That's good, right? Otherwise we wouldn't be able to see the sun. The sun wouldn't be able to transmit any energy to us if electromagnetic waves required a, required a medium to travel through. They would not be able to travel through the vacuum of space and it would be very dark and very cold here because we need that energy making it to us. But so electromagnetic waves do not. Otherwise, you know, be very, very boring here. Not only dark and cold because you couldn't see the sun, you wouldn't see the moon, you wouldn't see any planets, you wouldn't see any stars, you wouldn't see any galaxies. None of that light would be able to travel further away. So it's a very good thing that um, electromagnetic waves do not need anything to travel. Now, this is going into a little bit more detail than I want to go to here, but just to give you a quick idea on the images, is that when you have accelerating charges, the charges will interact and you'll actually get different field lines, when you oscillate those, that's what's really causing the electromagnetic waves. It's moving charged particles. That's all you need. Don't, don't worry about the images here. I'm not going to ask you any questions about them. Really the only thing you need to, know, need to know is what is causing the electromagnetic waves and that is accelerating charged particles. That's what we get them from. So the rest is going to a little bit more detail than I want to go to in this, in this class. But when you get that charge that vibrates and you've got them all over, that's part of the sun, that's part of you know, anything else that's generating energy, has some sort of charged particle that is vibrating, changing its position slightly, and creating an electromagnetic wave. 
And depending on how it's vibrating tells you what kind of electromagnetic wave you'd actually produce. Here's an example of, uh, I said it's electric and magnetic fields. Here's an example of a magnetic field that we're all familiar with. Right, the magnetic field of the Earth. So there we are up in there someplace. Um, there's the north magnetic pole, the south magnetic pole. The magnetic field lines are generated deep down in the core of the Earth. And those magnetic field lines come around out of the south pole and come back into the north pole. That's what these do is these are actually, that's what you use a compass. A compass actually follows along, points along the magnetic field lines and allows you to determine directions using using a compass and trying to detect the Earth's magnetic field. You can't see magnetic field lines directly. They're hidden, they're invisible, they're passing through us right now. You can't see anything with them. But we do see that we do see their, their effects. We can actually map out this magnetic field on the Earth. We can map it out on the Sun. We can see how the magnetic field of the Sun works uh, by watching how the charged particles follow around it. Charged particles coming to the Earth from the Sun. Charged particles don't like magnetic fields. So when you have charged particles streaming in from the Sun coming here, they hit the, hit the Earth's magnetic field and they kind of get deflected around it. So they'll go up this way around towards the North Pole, they'll go this way towards the South Pole. They don't come straight in and just smack into the Earth. They don't like to cross those magnetic field lines. So the magnetic field exerts a force on those particles and kind of turns them and follows this. So you notice where they're going to hit the Earth? Close to the North Pole, that's where they're actually going to finally strike our atmosphere is close to the North Pole. Close to the South Pole, that's where we get the aurora. Aurora is charged particles from the Sun, but if we didn't have a magnetic field, they'd just hit all over the place. Because we have a strong magnetic field, they're focused towards the poles and we get the aurora in northern and southern hemispheres. The stronger that burst is coming from the Sun, the further south they'll be able to go. The more those, that intensity will be able to deform the Earth's magnetic field and be able to push particles in at lower and lower latitudes. That's why typically you only see the aurora in you know, Canada, Alaska, over in uh, northern Europe. But in a very intense outburst, we can actually see that aurora much further, further down. So that's an example of a magnetic field, and we'll come back and look at a few more of those. They're uh, very important in a number of the objects that we'll look at in astronomy. We'll look at the sun has a strong magnetic field. Uh, some of the distant objects, pulsars, have a very strong magnetic field, much, much stronger. You know, thousands and millions of times stronger than the Earth's. So here's an electromagnetic wave. Again, just kind of sketching out what it means. Electromagnetic waves is a combination of two things. It's a combination of an electric field wave and a magnetic field wave. So, so it gets the name electromagnetic. And what happens is that you have a electric field changing as the wave moves. Well, what it turns out is a changing electric field creates a magnetic field. A changing magnetic field creates an electric field. So you've changed the electric field here as it changes. The magnetic field gets stronger. This gets a lot weaker, then it goes back. And that changing, as the magnetic field is changing very quickly right here, then it creates a stronger electric field and back and forth and that just, con that constantly propagates it through space. 
So one part of the field creates the other part and it just keeps going and that whole wave will then travel through space. So the changing electric field creates a magnetic field, changing magnetic field creates an electric field and they just keep going on, on and on through each other. So one forms here, not much of a change here at this point, but that's when this thing is changing the most and that's creating the magnetic field so it just keeps propagating on. They're perpendicular to each other and just travel through space like that. Again, a little bit more detail than I want to go into for this class. Basically just the idea that it's a combination of electric and magnetic fields that are traveling through space. And each vibrating creates the other and keeps it ongoing. Otherwise, the wave wouldn't go very far. All right, question, question. So let's look at down to the electromagnetic spectrum. Now this is the entire range of light. So we talk about most of astronomy, we talk about visible light. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. That's what you get if you split white light up into a spectrum. You see this, red through violet. In reality, that's only a tiny portion. And this is not even close to being to scale. It's an extremely tiny portion of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. The entire electromagnetic spectrum includes radio waves at very long wavelengths, infrared, a little bit shorter, visible light, which we're familiar with, ultraviolet, then x-rays, and then gamma rays being the very highest energy, very shortest wavelength, very low energy over here in the radio waves and very, very long wavelengths. But that visible light is only a teeny tiny portion of what we see. And for the longest time, that was how we knew of, knew of astronomy. That was everything. 100 years ago, that was the entire spectrum. That was all you could study. 100 years ago, we didn't have radio yet. Back in 1913, no radio. So no way to detect some of this other radiation yet either. Maybe little bits, maybe you could get a little bit of infrared on this side or a little bit of ultraviolet on this side, right? That gives you sunburn there, that, gets you, that, gets, that heats things up a little bit. But most of the rest of this spectrum was completely invisible to astronomers until very recently. It was only starting in the, radio astronomy started to pick up in the 1930s. I'm sorry, yeah. Little before, actually, the very earliest was the 1930s, but it really didn't pick up until World War II was a big help for it, because World War II is when they developed radar. Well, radar uses radio waves. So developing the technology for radar was a big help for radio astronomy, and it really started to boom in the 1950s, right after World War II. The other ones, problem with these other ones, that helps with radio, so that gives us a whole new window on the, on the universe, a way to see things that we couldn't see before. The problem with these other ones is their light is blocked out by the atmosphere. So most of the infrared doesn't get through the atmosphere. Most of the ultraviolet doesn't get through the atmosphere. Some of it does. Some of it's real close to the violet does, and that's what gets you burned in the summer. X-rays don't get through the atmosphere. Yay, right? We don't want to get bombarded by X-rays from space all the time. You know, you'd be having a constant X-ray, which, would, which wouldn't be pleasant for us. Gamma rays are even higher energy and more damaging. So in a way, although astronomers would love to be able to observe them, it's kind of good that we're not observing them from the surface of the Earth. In order to observe any of these others, we really have to send satellites up above the Earth's atmosphere in order to be able to see them. The only sections we can see from the Earth are radio and visible. Little bits in the infrared, too. 
Now the difference, the colors, are telling us about the wavelengths. So red light is a very long wavelength. Blue and violet are the very shortest wavelengths. And that can just be extended on. So red is the longest wavelength of visible light, but infrared has even longer wavelengths than that, and radio even longer wavelengths than that. On the other side, violet is the shortest wavelength for visible light. Ultraviolet is a little bit shorter, X-rays even shorter, and gamma rays even shorter than that. So it's really telling us about, looking at this whole range, is telling us about the wavelengths. Now here's a little bit more to scale, a little bit better. There's our little tiny bit of visible light right there. Expand it out there so you can see it. That's the little part of the visible spectrum. Again, until less than 100 years ago, that was how we knew everything. That's what we knew about the planets. That's what we knew about the stars. That's what we knew about galaxies. Everything we knew about it was from that little tiny bit of the spectrum. We couldn't see the rest of this. We couldn't see anything out here until we developed radio telescopes. We couldn't see anything here or here until we could get satellites up above the Earth's atmosphere. And that's part of what this bo- the part on the very bottom here is showing you. The blue sections here is where our atmosphere is opaque. Our atmosphere is not transparent, does not let those wavelengths through. Again, very nice. We don't want x-rays bombarding us from space. So it protects us as well. But you cannot see them. That means they don't get through. They get absorbed up very high up in the atmosphere. They never make it down towards the ground where a telescope would be able to pick them up. There's a little bit of a window here in the optical. Lines up exactly with the optical that we can see. So visible light does get through the atmosphere. You notice that it kind of has all this uh, range in here, a little jagged area in here where some gets through when you're out in the infrared and some does not. That typically depends on how much water you have in the atmosphere. Water is a very good source of absorbing infrared light. So if you have lots of water in the atmosphere, you're not going to get a lot of infrared coming through. So if you observe, your telescope is observing you know, near an ocean, any place very hot and humid, you're not going to be able to see. You're not going to be, that light is not going to get through, and this is going to get even worse. If you're at a very dry area, a mountain on top of in the, a mountain in the top in a desert, then you're much more likely to be able to observe a lot of this infrared. And we do have infrared telescopes that are on the surface of the Earth that observe from high mountains. So high mountains in relatively dry areas where you can actually get. If you get high, high up and high enough up in the atmosphere, you actually will not will be able to observe some of that infrared. For parts of it, when you get out here where everything's completely blocked again, you have to get up above the Earth's atmosphere. None of that will make it through. And then it becomes transparent again out here in the radio. So wavelengths that run from you know, maybe fingernail size up to you know, human size or several human size, those are the ones that actually make it through the Earth's atmosphere and that we can observe. So that's all we can study from the surface of the Earth. If we're talking about on the surface of the Earth, we can see visible light, some infrared, and radio wavelengths, and that's about it. The, inf- the electromagnetic spectrum extends on in every direction as far as you can imagine. Right? You have wa- waves the size of a skyscraper, you can have waves the size of a mountain, you can have waves the size of the Earth, and they can keep going on forever. There's no limit, there's no point where it says this is the absolute longest wave you can get. Shortest wave, they keep getting smaller and smaller, higher and higher energy gamma rays, and goes on, goes on forever that way. So you have a very big range of wavelengths.
question? You see? No? All right. Well, sorry for this slide. I usually don't like putting that much text on one slide. So, um, well, what it really is is a summary of what I've been telling you that there's only a few areas where we can actually see the light from the skies, any kind of electromagnetic radiation. There's only a few of those. The visible part, part of the infrared, part, and actually only part of the radio spectrum. You can't see the entire radio spectrum. So you're not going to be able to see all of that. The rest are atmosphere absorbs. So anything else we want to observe, we've got to get up above most of the atmosphere. We do that in a number of ways. We put uh, telescopes on mountaintops. Now get a pretty high mountain, you're getting above a lot of the atmosphere. Obviously not completely because you can still breathe up there, but you can actually get a pretty, pretty good uh, idea with that. You can get a pretty well above a lot of the atmosphere and especially above, above a lot of the water vapor. In fact, one of the places they put infrared telescopes is in Hawaii. Doesn't make sense from what I just told you about how wet, it, how wet it would be. But if you're on the mountaintops in Hawaii, even though you're sitting in the middle of the ocean, you're up above all the water vapor. So you can actually observe in the infrared, even in the middle of the ocean, as long as you're high enough up. How high is that telescope? Is it like 50,000 feet? I'm, I'm not sure of the number. Question? Yeah? Uh, there's like a hotel in Hawaii where like, if you stay there and it rains, you get free. Oh. Uh, that I don't know. <laughs> It never rains. Yeah. Well, that, a rainy season yeah. Their rainy season is typically like our um, winter, like January, February. Okay. Yeah. On the big island, like half the island will get a ton of rain and the other half will be. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I've, I've never been there, so I can't, I can't say. So, but any of that, anything, anything we want to see for some of the others, we also put telescopes in especially infrared telescopes are put in airplanes. Fly up really high up in the atmosphere. You can do observations there. Um, balloons. Balloons lifting them very high. Again, getting above a lot of the atmosphere, you can actually do a lot of, a lot of observing. But in order to really be able to observe anything like x-rays or gamma rays, you've got to get a satellite up in orbit, which is why it's only been about 50 years that we've been able to study any of that. It's only been the last 50 years or so that we've been able to put uh, Satellites in orbit that could observe X-rays, gamma rays, ultraviolet, and some of the parts of the infrared spectrum that we could not see from Earth. The last note down there is just telling you something about the scale, the way the scale was done on that previous slide. And that was that it's a logarithmic scale, meaning that instead of counting, you know, one, two, three, four, five, it counts by powers of 10. So you'd go 1, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000. It's a way in astronomy to put everything, to get a whole giant range of things, to show sizes from atomic nucleus size to mountain size on the same picture. Right? If we started with that atomic nucleus size as 1, well, we're going to have to go around the Earth several times to get up to that mountain size. Right? It's going to take too much. So you compress it and you count by 10. You do factors of 10 each time. And that allows it to give you a, a bigger range of what's going on there. So that's just what the note is there at the bottom. Uh, just because you might see something like that again. It's nothing that you need to specifically worry about. The more information is what you can see, what types of things do get through the atmosphere, and what things don't. All right. Now we're going to look at a couple types of radiation. And we'll get started on this and then finish it up on Friday. Um, the black body spectrum is the type of radiation emitted by 
most things in the universe. Most stars and galaxies are mostly just the added emission of stars. And you get some sort of graph that looks like this. If you measure how bright it is at all different frequencies or at all different wavelengths. And when you get to very short frequencies, or very, sorry, very short wavelengths, very high frequencies, that's x-rays, gamma rays, it drops off very, very quickly. And then it go, drops off much slower towards the longer wavelength side, towards the radio waves, towards the infrared waves. What it is is that this, this curve doesn't depend, it depends only on the temperature of the object. It doesn't depend on what it's made up of. It doesn't depend on anything except its temperature. So any star, with the, any star of the same temperature is going to give you a spectrum pretty much the same. Now that's overall, there's some more details that we can get down into later, but overall that's the type of spectrum that we see from most astronomical objects. There are some that we'll study in a couple of the last chapters that emit something completely different than this, some very unusual objects. But typically everything that we see is what we call thermal radiation, depends only on the temperature of the object. Thermal for temperature, depending only on the temperature. And that's what we see for most for stars. We'll see a spectrum drops off very quickly. You know, a star like the Sun doesn't emit a lot of X-rays and gamma rays. Does do some, you can detect them. A star like the Sun doesn't emit a lot of radio waves. But it peaks right about here in the middle of the visible portion of the spectrum. Let me see. Now, to go in a little aside here, and because you'll hear me give a lot of uh, temperatures at times, we talk about you know, the Sun is about 6,000 degrees. All of the temperatures that we use in astronomy are typically on the Kelvin temperature scale. So we know Fahrenheit, right? You know Celsius, some at least. Water boils at 100 degrees and freezes at 0 degrees. Well, Kelvin is very close to the Celsius scale, except it starts at 0. 0 is as cold as you can possibly get on the Kelvin scale. So temperature does have a lower limit. It can't just get, keep getting colder and colder and colder. There's a limit, which in Fahrenheit is 459 degrees below zero. Never come close to that kind of temperature here on Earth. Uh, Celsius is negative 273 degrees. On Kelvin, it's zero. So in the Kelvin scale, you can never have a negative temperature. Now, for most things we talk about, even though I give temperatures in Kelvin, it really doesn't make much of a difference whether you're using Kelvin or Celsius. When you get up to temperatures for nuclear fusion to be able to fuse hydrogen into helium, you can talk about 10 million degrees Celsius or 10,273 degrees Kelvin. Does it really matter? Now you can be able to measure it that accurately anyway. So when you get to these really big ones, when you start talking about many thousands of degrees, it's only a slight difference between, between the two scales. But that's what it is, and that's what the Kelvin scale means, is that when you get down to zero, everything stops moving. Not just standing still, but all the molecules. And molecules are constantly vibrating. The, cold, the, the temperature that we measure is a measure of that vibration. If you get it cold enough, eventually those molecules stop moving, and that is as low a temperature as you can possibly get. You can't get anything colder than stopping them moving. How do you make them move negatively? They can't. So that's the zero point given. Yes, sir? Have they gotten in there yet? No. They'll get, they get close, but whether you can actually get to absolute zero would be a good question. Space itself is about three degrees above that zero. So even if you go out in that vacuum of space, there's still, there's, there's, a, there's still about three degrees temperature there. So trying to make it any colder is very, is very difficult.
No, I don't. Do you know? I don't know if you'd. Do you have an? I don't know if you hadn't. Oh yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, I'm sure they've gotten down. Yeah, I believe that, but I, I know nothing will get close to that 459. I, mean, I know nothing will get close to that, but I'm not sure what the lowest temperatures they've been able to to get are. Well, let me just introduce. I'm about out of time. Let me do the first radiation law. Just show that up there, and then I'll come back on Friday, and we'll fin we'll finish this up. The first radiation law that we're going to do. It says that the wavelength is inversely proportional to the temperature. So it really is saying that the wavelength of the peak for that object, whatever object you're looking at, whether it be a protostar here, a star like the sun, a very hot object, or a very, very cool object, where that peak, notice that the curve is all the same. It's the same curve, it's just shifted depending on what the temperature is. If you have something at 6,000 degrees, the peak is in the visible part of the spectrum. That's why we can see it. If you have something much hotter, that peak is shifted over to into the infrared, or into the ultraviolet, sorry. If you have something much cooler, it's shifted into the infrared. Even colder, so those are some areas of star formation, it's even colder, it still shows the same type of spectrum, same type of energy being emitted, it's just that peak has shifted. And that's what the first of the radiation laws is telling us. And I will come back on Friday, I'll review that, and we'll go over the first law, and then I'll start a pick up on the, on, the second, on the second law for you there. Questions? Don't forget, if you haven't done the quiz, to make sure you get that done. And if you have solar observations, I can take them now, or you can turn them in on D2L sometime before 6 tomorrow. And I should have everything. I'll have the solar observations. I should have most of the rest of it back for you on Friday as well.